0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This may sound a little silly, but did you know that you don't need a birth certificate to prove that somebody is alive? (laughs) Every person in this room, I'm going to make an assumption that you were born, and I don't need to see a birth certificate to tell me that you were born. In fact, my daughter, who's 10, we don't even have a birth certificate on file for her. The state of Texas stopped issuing them. That's where she was born, Um, and they said, you can get it online if you need it for the details, the when and the where and to whom, but you don't need a birth certificate just to see that someone is born. If you meet someone and they're walking around, you can assume that a birth took place. And it could have taken place in a variety of ways, but you can assume that this person was born and they are alive. And I'm bringing that up because we're going to talk about um, not our natural birth this morning. We're going to talk about the idea of being born again. It's in John chapter 3, and uh, I'm bringing this up because sometimes I do think that people in the church we'll get hung up examining uh, spiritual birth certificates. Instead of looking just to see, is this person alive in the Lord? uh, We can get hung up looking at the details. The when, the where, the how someone was born again. Sometimes in churches, we even insist that everyone have the same type of birth certificate. That everyone's being born again had to take place in the same way. It has to have certain characteristics to be legit. And I bring this up because there's a phrase, born again, in John chapter 3. We actually looked at it in 1 Peter 1 at our Bible study this past weekend. Um, But what does it mean to be born again? I mean, my hunch is that if you've hung around Christians, uh, you've heard that phrase. And uh, some people love that phrase and some would prefer never to hear it again because of the way it's used, and uh, it's a cliche, um, but it's something Jesus talked about. And so I don't want to let our overfamiliarity or maybe past bad experience with this term uh, prevent us from seeing what Jesus has to teach us in this passage, what it means to be uh, born again. Again, I know that it's a term that has some baggage. It can bring to mind a certain kind of of Christian or Christianity, a certain type of experience. But Jesus has a word for us this morning in John chapter 3, if we have ears to hear. Um, there's so much in this passage, but I want to focus on these two key questions. Uh, one, who needs to be born again? And two, how are we born again? Again, and I'm not as concerned with your spiritual birth certificate. I'm concerned with whether you're alive or not what it means to be alive in the Lord. So first, who needs to be born again? John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, And so what's interesting is that it looks like Jesus here is saying that everyone needs to be born again to see the kingdom of God. I think if you did a straw poll, if you went down to Athens and asked who needs to be uh, born again, we usually think, (laughs) well, the person who is messing up life. The person who nothing is working. And maybe what they need to pull them out of their funk is, is this deep, you know, cathartic, emotional experience. And that's great if you need that. And if that works for you, wonderful. I think when we hear the phrase born again, we think of dramatic conversions. People who have lived wild lives, um, irreligious people, wonderful pagans, card-carrying non-Christians that God has gotten a hold of somehow and turn them absolutely around. And praise be to God, that's some of our stories. And that is one of the ways that folks are born again, in an instant, in a moment. Um, But I want to say that there may be more. There may be also a process of being born again, where we come to know the Lord and find that we are alive. And what's interesting is Nicodemus here, well, he doesn't match that description, does he? He's not wild. He's not a pagan. We don't get the sense that he is uh, living in reckless sin, that he is living far from the Lord. Uh, no, we're actually told that he is a teacher of Israel. Um, by the way, do you ever remember, uh, is, this, is the cable station Nickelodeon still on? I don't know, does anyone still get cable? I don't, I don't know <laughs> if anyone still gets cable, but there used to be this station called Nickelodeon, Um, and it had children's programming. And then at night, they would have the old uh, shows, and they would call it Nick at Night. Um, And so anytime I see Nicodemus, he's coming at night. I'm like, oh, it's Nick at Night. This is great. (laughs) Here we go, Nick at Night coming to talk to Jesus. Um, He's coming under the cover of darkness to have a conversation with Jesus. Um, I just want to show you this man's credentials. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Um, that he's a ruler of the Jews. Um, This man is a powerful political and religious figure. He would have been uh, old and wise, probably rich, probably well-respected by his peers. Um, In terms of his natural birth, he certainly had been born into the right family, uh, the family of Abraham, God's chosen people. He he doesn't look at all like the kind of person who needs a fresh encounter with the living God. He has everything going for him as he comes to meet with Jesus. Uh, By the way, some have seen his coming at night as cowardly. Um, I don't know. At this time, uh, if you look at uh, John chapter 2, Jesus has just cleansed the temple in John's telling. Um, he is a controversial figure. Uh, Nicodemus's peers are against Jesus. They're growing concern with this new teacher and his new influence. I actually think Nicodemus comes uh, to do some old-fashioned backroom politicking. He comes as an equal. And it appears he doesn't come as an individual seeker, but as a representative spokesperson. Rabbi, we know. He's coming on behalf of the Pharisees. He's coming on behalf of the religious elite to see what they make of this person, Jesus, who's entered their city. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He seems to be complimenting Jesus, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Later, verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be Uh, Born again. (laughs) He comes complimenting Jesus and Jesus says, hey, not so fast. We're not on equal terms here. (laughs) Something needs to happen in your life. You must be uh, born again. And if I want to point out that Nicodemus says, I've come on behalf of this group. Well, when Jesus says you must be born again, that's the good old Greek y'all. You and everyone like you. Everybody needs to be born again. Nicodemus, you and all of your highly qualified religious, moral friends must be born again. There needs to be a new starting point. Did you know, Nicodemus, that you're no better off or closer to God than the woman at the well in a few chapters of the woman caught in adultery in the middle of this book? Remember, the key question is who needs to be born again? And according to Jesus, that answers everyone. Everyone at every end of the moral spectrum, from those who clearly delight and wallow in sin all the way up to decent, moral Nicodemus. Because God is doing something drastically new. Here in John, God is starting a new family in which ordinary birth isn't enough. Now, the kingdom of God is being thrown open to anyone and everyone but everyone needs to be born again. And I would say, given Nicodemus' questions, um, Nicodemus and his, his friends probably were willing to concede that God might be doing the next thing in and through Jesus. Okay, you could be part of this story. You could be maybe the next chapter, the next iteration, the next bullet point. It looks like God's, you know, no one could do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus says, this is not the next thing. This is a new thing. This is the thing God always intended. In Jesus, we don't have the next. We have the new, the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, the suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Word made flesh. There's a huge difference between seeing Jesus as the next prophet, the next teacher, or seeing him as the new Savior. Uh, One of the commentators I've read on this passage is a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. He's a New Testament theologian. I love Frederick Dale Bruner. Years ago, I went on staff with a ministry called Young Life, and they actually took us out to uh, Portland for a month uh, for training. And for one of the weeks, what we actually got was Frederick Dale Bruner, this old, wise, crusty New Testament professor, and he walked us through the Gospel of John in a week, it's fantastic. <laughs> 9 to 5, every day, we just walk through uh, the Gospel of John. Um, and I love his take on Nicodemus. He says that Nicodemus will learn, like all of us, that Jesus is much more uh, than a teacher, but Jesus is nothing less. And he says, actually, seeing Jesus as the teacher is not a bad or a false beginning. He says, look at this middle way. He says, some liberal Christianities, have stopped where Nicodemus begins. He's a teacher come from God, and the consequences have been tragic. He says, but some conservative Christianities have failed to take Jesus as teacher very seriously, with tragic consequences too. If the content of faith doesn't graduate from teacher to savior, there's no birth from above. You can say, I've come to teach you, I've come To save you, you think you need more teaching, you need a whole new life. You've got to break out of the teacher paradigm into seeing Jesus as Savior and then learn from him. Then take his yoke upon you and see that it is wonderful. Nicodemus kind of gets it. He's getting there, but he's he's confused by this language of new birth. And I actually love this because Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. He thinks, I hope, he thinks that they're actually um, making sense of one another. He's using metaphor and analogy. And Nicodemus goes, wait a minute, you can't be born twice. (laughs) He has totally gotten fixated on this image, this metaphor. He trips over it. He doesn't see how it will work. And so, verses 9 through 16, how are we born again? Again, Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can this be? I love it. He tells Jesus... Um, Here, Um, (laughs) he's asking, how can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus, what are you talking about? What are you talking about here? And Jesus answered him uh, pretty sharply. Verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And verse 10, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Man, I thought you were some kind of big time. (laughs) You don't get it? Really? We're not on the same page, Nicodemus? (laughs) Um, I think it's it's humbling for him. Nicodemus is, after all, well-respected. He is a senior teacher. He's actually probably too used to teaching and not accustomed to learning anymore. He probably has a conversation in which he's thinking more about how he's going to reply than listening to the other person. I'm sure none of us can relate to that ever. Um, <laughs> by the way, it's very interesting. Verse 11 Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you go back up to verse 8, he says, The wind, the spirit blows where it wishes. You may hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, it's interesting, being born. Why does he use that image? Again, Nicodemus points out, this isn't a natural thing. You're not born twice. Um, hey, speaking of that 10-year-old, see, we don't need a birth certificate to show that Zoe is alive. <laughs> she is right here. <laughs> Coming to sit among us. Good. Um, (laughs) There we go. Um, Sorry, got a little distracted there. Um, Uh, Why does Jesus use this imagery of being born again? Um, Well, certainly there's the idea of a fresh start, of a new life. Um, I think the other thing that's really clear to me is that being born is something that happens to you. You don't will yourself to be born. It's a process that takes place. It's the wind blowing where it will. Something happens to us. It's a gift, a gift of grace, an act of God to save us and to deliver us and to make us alive. And so to illustrate, Jesus pulls out this really obscure Bible story, this weird story from the book of Numbers. Look carefully at verses 3, uh, 14 through 16. Um, I think sometimes we don't realize this is the context for one of the most well-known Bible verses in the entire world, John 3.16. Look at how this section begins. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This weird story from Numbers. Maybe you remember it. Um, Israel is out in the wilderness. Um, They've clearly sinned. They've broken most of the commandments that we opened our service with. They've grumbled against Moses. They've grumbled against the Lord. And the next thing you know, for punishment, poisonous snakes come into their midst. That's terrifying, right, by the way? Poisonous snakes come in and they bite a lot of people, they kill some folks. And God tells Moses, Here's how you're going to heal them. Um, Make a, a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, hold it up for the people to look at. And those who looked upon it, when it was lifted up, they were healed, they were delivered, they were saved. Jesus says apparently that rather obscure moment was a giant arrow prefiguring and pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, I actually think of it, you know, each Sunday we actually bring in a processional cross and many of us look upon it. Some will even bow or cross themselves, do something to to note the reverence of what's happening. I always think of that moment (laughs) just as, Moses lifted up the serpent in the world. We look upon the cross and we're saved. We look upon the source of healing, the source of life, the source of our salvation. That's what we see. Here's what God has done to make this new birth possible. And then we get John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Um. I don't know about you, that was one of the first verses I ever memorized as a kid, uh, in the old King James Version. Um, I memorized it before I had any clue what it meant, which is fine. (laughs) If you can imprint those things early on, great, you can draw on them later. Uh, But when I memorized, for God so loved the world, um, I was taught it this way, that that was showing us the amount of love God had. For God so loved the world. He loved the world so much, that kind of a thing. But what's actually happening in this passage is this is telling us how God loved the world. For God so loved the world. This is how he loved us. He gave his son. The way he loved us was to lift him up like the serpent in the wilderness so that we could look upon him and believe and be saved. I love the implication that just like those snakes that come in and bite us, there is a snake that has entered not the camp but the garden and bit each one of us, inflicted us with this terrible, deadly disease of sin, and the only cure is to look upon that which is lifted up for us and for our salvation to believe and receive new life. The only cure is to look at the Son of Man on the cross and find life through believing in Him. The whole point of this story is not um, whether you are Nicodemus, who is respected and knowledgeable, or you're the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. He says if you're on any end of that spectrum, Jesus is lifted up for you. And it's not how bad your sin has been, it's how good your Savior is. And you look upon him, and you believe, and you live. This says that God has planted the cross like a sign in the middle of history for us to encounter, to ponder, to look upon, to adore, and believe. God is bringing about the new birth, the new era of salvation through the victory of Jesus on the cross. You know, sometimes when we approach Holy Week and Easter, we look at it as chapter one is bad, the death of of Jesus, the resurrection, chapter two is good. But John would tell us that the whole story is good news. (laughs) The whole story is glory. The whole story is grace. Archbishop William Temple once wrote, it is not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but the sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross then is not for Christians a stumbling block which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by a subsequent victory. It is itself the triumph. Because what was the devil's worst has become God's best. And it's interesting. Nicodemus kind of fades away. We don't see his response. He'll appear later Actually, in John 7, he sticks up for Jesus. And finally, at the very end of the Gospel of John, he shows up at the cross uh, with Joseph preparing Jesus for burial. You see, he was able to look upon Jesus lifted up on the cross like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. The implication is he looked, he believed, he perceived the mysterious work of God displayed on the cross. Um, And I would just say, again, if you're looking for a clear formula, a prescription of what conversion looks like, of what being born again looks like, it's intriguing to me that we never see it with Nicodemus, the one who raises the question. When was he born again? When did he come to faith? When between John 3 and John 7 and the end of the book did he repent and believe? Uh, We don't know, but he did. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured upon the church and poured upon Nicodemus. My hunch is that this conversation stuck with him. He turned it over in his mind over and over again. He kept watching Jesus He kept exploring. He had questions. There were seeds planted that later bore magnificent fruit. Other conversions are different. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you see this extraordinary uh, work of God to blind him with the glory of the gospel, like some of you are being blinded uh, by the sun this morning. Um, I don't know. Is being born again an event or a process? Is conversion something gradual or is it a moment in time? I would say yes. (laughs) And I would just submit to you that this is something we get really hung up on. To me, every conversion that seems instantaneous, there's been a process leading up to it. Paul, it seems like he's converted in an instance. You know where the seed of the gospel is planted in Paul? Paul. When he oversees the death of Stephen, and Stephen proclaims the gospel, and then Stephen uh, lives out the gospel, giving his life, even praying for those who are killing him. I think that planted a seed in Paul that Jesus himself reaps. What about those that it seems like a process? Nicodemus, there's a process with him. He's not someone who is far from God. He's right next to God. He's a teacher in Israel. He is seeking the Lord, but there's still something else to happen. We don't know when the penny dropped, but it drops. Conversion, new birth, it's a process and it's a moment. If we get too tied up on the specifics, um, well, friends, we can make it about ourselves. And we can make it about church technique, and we can make it about human response. We can say, hey, will you show me your spiritual birth certificate? I'm much more concerned with whether or not you're alive in the Lord. One of the most famous converts of the last century uh, was C.S. Lewis. You may know C.S. Lewis. Anglicans pull him out quite a bit in sermons. Um. I think I'm going to get the details right. If not, there are people here who can correct me. Um, but there's the story that he, was, uh, he had been investigating, taking steps in his journey of faith. Um, he didn't go from being an atheist to a Christian. He went from being an atheist to a theist, to believing there was a God. And as he explored further, um, he eventually became a Christian. But he says that it actually happened when he was riding in his brother's motorcycle sidecar. They were on their way to the zoo. He says, when we set out, he's on this journey, um, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. At some point on that journey, some gentle moment, the penny dropped. And I would just say for most of us, conversion can be like that. This gentle moment where the penny drops and we go, oh my gosh, I'm alive. God has done a work. I actually believe that Jesus loves me and died for me, that he is the son of God. Oh, my goodness. The important part is not when you believed, it's that you believe. I'm not as concerned with the details, the specifics, but I do want to make sure you're alive in the Lord. And again, Nicodemus was right to suggest that this, you know, born-again thing sounds tricky. if downright impossible from the human side of things. We can overextend the image and make it too much about personal decisions. Friends, if you know the Lord, if you place your faith, your trust, and the saving work of Christ for you, then the proper response to a passage like this is worship and adoration. It's not going, am I really? <laughs> um, if you're leaning into the things of God, um, That's what he wants. That's a proper response. Now, if you're here this morning, you're like, I know I'm not a Christian, Um, or I know I've been coming for a long time, and I, you know, I've studied this stuff. I've been close to it. It's just, mm -mm. the penny has never dropped. Um, Well, maybe Nicodemus gives you a model. Nicodemus comes for a conversation. Um, he begins a process. He begins a dialogue that results in his conversion. And I would say, if you're here this morning, and you would say, I don't get this, start with a conversation. Um, reach out. You can reach out to me. Reach out to any of our staff. Um, we'll have a prayer team during a communion. You can come forward and talk with them, pray with them, pray for strengthening with them. Um, and we'd be more than happy to meet with you and talk with you and begin a dialogue. Um, Because our concern is not that we would rip you into a frenzy and get you to do something right now. We want you to understand what it means that Jesus was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness for you and for your salvation so that you can repent and believe the good news. Let's pray together. Oh God, our creator who sent your son as the way, the truth, and the life to save me and all the world. We believe in you and ask that you would help our unbelief. We long to understand all that it means to be loved, known, and forgiven by you. To be made whole, at peace with you, at peace with one another, ourselves, and your creation. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us and open our eyes to all that you are as you draw us closer to you. Amen. Amen.